Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The U.S. economy finished 2015 on a high note by adding 292,000 new jobs during the month of December. The economy is good enough that the Federal Reserve finally felt comfortable with higher interest rates. So what's this mean for the central Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania economies in 2016? Joining us to talk about it is financial services economist, PNC financial services economist, Kurt Rankin. Kurt, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Kurt uh, Rank has been with us many times over the years, and uh, we always get a good idea of what's happening here with the central Pennsylvania regional economy and in Pennsylvania. So if you have a question about Pennsylvania or central PA, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Since it is the first month of the year, Kurt, I thought that uh, we'd start off talking about uh, the year that has just passed or maybe even the last two years uh, that have just passed nationally and here in central Pennsylvania. But let's start with the U.S. economy. Overall, how would you describe the nation's economy right now? Uh, The quick, easy answer is middling. Uh, GDP growth that's uh, going along at a pace you would expect from a healthy economy. But uh, the advantage we've got um, that 2015 gave us is that job growth um, was steady and getting to the point where we're now going to have to start to see wage growth as employers battle to retain and um, attract new talent. All right. Now, middling, I think a lot of people have an idea of what that means in their mind. But from an economist's point of view, what does middling mean? Middling means that uh, the U.S. economy could be growing faster um, if we had some engine of growth like we've seen in the past um, with at least the early parts of the housing uh, boom before it became a bubble or the tech boom, or some other industrial core that were really driving growth. But what we've got for the U.S. economy is an economy that's healthy and that has a low unemployment rate and a stable monetary policy um, rebuilding towards normality, which means the U.S. economy will grow at 2.5%, whereas that number might be closer to 3 to 3.5% if it was at full potential or running on all cylinders um, and had a real growth driver. Now, you know, that almost sounds like good and bad news. Obviously, it's a good thing to have that driver, uh, like you described, housing, um, you know, the, the tech bubble, bubble being the key word there. But the mixed part of it I'm thinking of is when you do have a bubble, when you do have that driver, sometimes it can't be sustained. And then when it does crash, we see what happened in 2008. That's exactly right. That happened with the, uh, you mentioned the tech bubble. I was talking about the tech boom, but eventually that became a bubble as well. And unfortunately, that's sometimes where financial markets come in as they latch on to this next best thing. But economically speaking, um, there is infrastructure is a potential uh, driver. There's plenty of uh, failing and poor infrastructure throughout the United States. There's plenty of technology uh, that could be implemented into that. Um, But that takes uh, leadership from uh, governments and public-private partnerships that uh, the environment hasn't been right for. There's natural resources. We're now able to uh, export oil across uh, the world, and the technology is developing to export natural gas. But with the world economy being uh, weak, exports are not going to be a driver for some time either. Uh, So there's potential out there, but none of them are on-the-ground reality right now. When does something become a a driver? And the reason I ask that question, Kurt, is because one of the key characteristics of this recovery— 
and you know we're we're almost eight years down the road now, but one of the key characteristics of this recovery has been caution that there's been so much caution out there because so many people got burned back in 2007, 2008. It's almost like uh, employers, businesses, government to a degree, that so many uh, sectors are afraid to really jump in with all hands, if you will, because of that caution. You're right. Uh, Caution has been a watchword. It has characterized this recovery, um, is likely to continue to do so. um, It's going to take need Um, for businesses to start hiring and expanding, a need that we're starting to get to with capacity utilization getting towards the point where employers feel the need to hire another worker because they have new customers every month. Not many new customers necessarily, but at at some point, just one new customer means I need to hire one more person because I can't stretch my existing capacity any thinner. Uh, 292,000 jobs in the month of December for the U.S. economy. Uh, That surprised a a lot of people that it was uh, that robust. Uh, And overall, uh, you know, we're creating jobs at a pace, uh, as I think I said in one of my uh, promos earlier, uh, that we haven't seen since 1999. In what sectors, what sectors are we seeing job growth? Uh, Professional business services has been a support throughout the recovery thus far. Uh, leisure and hospitality is, is um, an area, and that's a good area to see expansion. Although they're not the highest-paying jobs, they are jobs that indicate that um, those with jobs are no longer holding back as much in terms of spending. They're willing to spend. They spend into their local economies. They create more jobs locally, um, and that's something we'll, that actually we'll talk about as a bright spot uh, when we get to central Pennsylvania. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, and, and I think I'm glad that you pointed out when you sort of talk about this uh, uh, service sector jobs, because most people think of them as the low paying. Uh, they always point out fast food jobs, that kind of thing. But service encompasses a lot more than just working in a restaurant, even though it does include that. Right. Well, also the uh, statistical agencies that collect these data separate leisure and hospitality and retail from professional and business services, and professional and business services is where you get jobs by businesses doing business, hiring accountants, hiring lawyers, hiring uh, computer network designers. All of this falls under this wide umbrella of professional and business services. So because businesses are expanding quickly or slowly, that category is going to expand right along with it, and it's always a good indicator as to whether or not the economy is able to maintain its pace of growth. And I think uh, from 2015, those jobs numbers, we should see uh, good numbers in 2016 following on their heels. Now, we have to separate some of these jobs and some of these sectors, but for the most part, are these good paying jobs? Yes. Um, Professional business services are often uh, relatively good paying jobs. They're not going to be as high as manufacturing or transportation and warehousing. Um, But they are better than better paying than say leisure and hospitality jobs and or, or retail jobs, uh, which are also growing. We really need all of the the entire job um, spectrum, if you will, to uh, be growing because we need people that entry level jobs can move up. Um, people move out of those entry level jobs, uh, as we heard so much anecdotal evidence of people with college degrees having to take jobs that they're not uh, necessarily that they weren't going to school for. Uh, which was taking away those jobs from the people that uh, might better fit into those positions. So they, they're able to move up that job ladder, uh, opening those, low, those positions in those industries. So it's a, it's a circle um, that's um, running quite well right now. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're talking with PNC Financial Services economist Kirk Rankin. If you have a question about the economy, maybe where some of those jobs are, uh, or some of the factors that may lead toward uh, a a faster-growing recovery, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF. Facebook page. Now, I I, want to clarify some things that we're talking about, Kurt. Um, What do you as economists, uh, when I I ask you the question, are these good paying jobs? As economists, uh, what do you classify as a good paying, a family sustaining job? Um, Well, that's hard to answer. I mean, there's plenty of jobs in pretty much any of the non-retail related minimum wage type jobs. Uh, that can support a family, um, but there's different levels within any any industry. You've got entry level jobs that aren't going to support a family, but then you um, have tenure within certain industries. You've got um, jobs that just start out uh, paying higher. So uh, I don't know if we're we're looking for a median household income um, number. I'd have to look that up for you but i can't well no i mean i get the we we get the idea but do you look at that median household income and say that uh uh, and 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 maybe i'm i'm fishing here but uh uh, do you look at that median household income and say okay that's a that's if if this job is able to reach that uh pay enough that reach that reaches that household median that that's a good job yes the median household income in pennsylvania is just under fifty five thousand dollars a year so um, that's going. To, I mean, that means we've got half on, half below that, half, half above that. So the average is going to be lower because there's going to be far more lower-paying jobs. But um, just looking at a household budget without stretching it or straining or uh, overreaching, um, jobs that pay in the order of uh, thirty-five, forty thousand um, dollars. And of course, how many kids do you have? This is why this is a difficult question to uh, paint with a broad brush. Mm-hmm. But, um, all of these industries, but professional and business services, especially um, manufacturing, transportation, these are all going to generally pay around that median um, and have the potential even for more, depending on the position within that industry. Another characteristic of this recovery has been that uh, wages really have not uh, risen over the last uh, seven or eight years uh, when inflation is taken into account. However, in 2015, nationally, for the U.S. economy, wages did rise 2.5%. They were flat in December, even though we added all these jobs. But overall, in 2015, the wages did rise 2.5%. Is that a sign of things to come? Yes. Uh, Wages haven't been growing because the labor markets had to rebalance nationally. Um, not just within industries, but people um, slowly being able to relocate because home values got back to the point where they could feel they could actually sell without being underwater. You can't relocate for a job. You can't start looking for a job across the country if you can't sell your house uh, where you're at uh, in your existing position. That's slowly been relieved. So um, the labor market's been able to rebalance. We've been able to sustain an unemployment rate around 5%, which is good. It's been lower, but only toward only during periods of, of really strong growth in the U.S. economy. Uh, So a stable uh, labor market, 
means that uh, people have jobs, all of a sudden there are fewer and fewer people to choose from with the talents and skills that these employers need, so they have to start offering wages in order to retain those employees that they have, or if they need to hire new employees, they may need to poach them from uh, the competition, and that means offering uh, better wages than they might be receiving at the moment. Let's take a phone call from Ann in Harrisburg. Ann, you're on the air. It's 45 seconds. Okay, hold on just a second, Ann. We'll get to... 14 hours. Well, we'll have to get to Ann in just a minute here because I see that uh, something's a little bit different on my board. But uh, one of the things, and I'll try to, uh, you know, I see some of the things that Ann is asking here. She wanted to know uh, if the data is broken down by gender or race. Do you do that? Uh, Not at the state level or the local level, but there are some numbers um, at the national level. Um, especially for uh, the number of unemployed, um, some outdated uh, census data annual levels that wouldn't be available for 2015 or in some cases even 2014. We do have some uh, data broken down by demographics, yes. Okay. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is PNC Financial Services economist Kurt Rankin. We're talking about the U.S. economy so far, but we will be talking about the central PA economy. Our guest uh, can be, uh, we can ask a question of Kurt Rankin at, uh, if you would like to at 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And, Ann, I believe you're there now. Now, I think Ann left because you probably uh, you probably answered her question. A couple other things, Kurt. Uh, Federal Reserve has agreed to increase interest rates for the first time in years. What impact will that have on the economy? Rising interest rates are not going to have a significant impact on the U.S. economy at this point. They're still exceptionally low. Rising usually means tightening monetary policy usually means the Federal Reserve is attempting to slow down, not stall out, but just slow down economic activity, hopefully trying to prevent uh, some sort of bubble or other. But in this case, we've got abnormal monetary policy, or the federal funds rate at 0% for seven years. The Fed funds rate is rising just to get it back to normal at this point. So um, 25 basis points, maybe two or three more times in 2016, we're still going to be under 1%, which is still exceptionally low. So the U.S. economy shouldn't suffer um, a great deal in the current uh, tightening cycle. Now, what does that have to do, if anything, at this point, and this is kind of abnormal, I think, as well, uh, with inflation, that over the years the Fed tried to control inflation with interest rates. But Inter- or excuse me, inflation has been relatively low over the last few years as well. Right. Inflation is something that the Federal Reserve, the two items the Federal Reserve is charged with governing, uh, looking out, uh, designing monetary policy to direct our full employment, the unemployment rate, and uh, inflation. With inflation being so exceptionally low because of um, oil prices, uh, because of a lack of wage growth, um, inflation actually has the risk of being too weak, and that would stall out the Federal Reserve's uh, interest in raising interest rates, because rising interest rates, for better or worse, does that filters through to credit card interest rates to ability consumers' ability to spend, and with less spending, you would get a less inflation push. So the Federal Reserve's got a uh, tightrope to walk in the sen- and with respect to inflation. Does inflation mean that there are businesses, uh, there are employers out there that uh, are making more money? 
um, inflation is not going to be the primary driver between right now with uh, it being 0% or under 2% at least. 2% is a normal growing economy and inflation. That's why it's the Federal Reserve's target rate. We talked earlier about wages, uh, wage growth growing at 2.5%. As long as wages are growing faster than um, inflation, then individuals with a job getting a raise, a cost of living raise each year are going to be able to buy more next year than they could this year just because prices aren't keeping up with those rising wages. So businesses um, are able to keep uh, their labor costs from rising too rapidly or have been so far. That's something that's going to, we're going to have to look at uh, potentially changing over the next couple of years as labor markets tighten to the point where wages have to rise. The reason I ask that question is because, and I, and I pretty much knew your answer, but uh, uh, that I thought that there may be some people who would, who would believe that, uh, okay, prices go up. Not a good thing for consumers necessarily, but it may mean more money into the pockets of employers who may, in turn, hire more people. Right, uh, and that's how the theory works. But in an ex- extraordinary environment such as we've had, with low prices, low uh, wages, consumer demand having to recover from such a deep recession, um, it's it's a matter of attracting new employee or excuse me, new customers at this point that has driven more money into the pockets of businesses. Uh, it's not until we get to a balanced economy where businesses um, are operating at near full capacity. Um, and everything is as normal as business is going to be day to day, that we uh, start to worry about margin, how much more or less we're making, uh, a business is making by raising prices. Um, businesses have the ability to, ra- to raise prices at any point, but they're going to only do it in response to their ability to, which means that wages are rising and their customers can handle those price uh, rises. Mm-hmm. All right. I think Ann is on the phone now. Ann, are you there? Yes. There you are. Okay. And I, I, I know that uh, Kurt addressed uh, what you were talking about a little bit, but I didn't want to put words in your mouth. So what specifically is your comment or uh, or question? Okay. That we do a disservice to our understanding of unemployment when we uh, blend all the statistics, the unemployment statistics together. We need to disaggregate employment, unemployment statistics based on gender and race. For example, when we take a look at unemployment statistics for white men, they are much, much better than they are for women of color. We need to, we need to separate the experience of unemployment based on gender and race to understand what's happening in Pennsylvania and in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Kurt, do you think she makes a point? Um, yes, the unemployment rate for... Um, Minority women, minority men as well, is higher than the unemployment rate for uh, white males. So that would be valuable information. Um, For the labor market itself, not so much. That's a question for policymakers and those who drive um, policy that tries to attack social issues more than economic issues. But, you know, one of the things I thought of was as Ann was describing that, and you could break it down into other uh, sectors as well. 
But uh, and this is more of a statistical thing, but you see the average income of those who have uh, a college education, those who have graduated from college, have a four year bachelor's degree as uh, compared to those who have a two year associate's degree or someone who has a high school degree. And even going further back for those who, who didn't complete a high school education, that there are a lot of different sectors where there are uh, some real differences. Yes. And, and the wage growth or the unemployment rate, any of those related statistics, the gaps are huge uh, when you jump from um, not having a high school degree or high school uh, diploma up to having some college but not graduated, up to having a college degree, the unemployment rates uh, differ by several percentage points in some cases, uh, whether we're talking about a high unemployment rate environment or a strong economy, low unemployment rate environment, those differences remain. It's all at the, the notion of having a college degree um, is simply a game changer if you're talking about the economics of break, trying to break down where uh, job growth is most stable or most sustainable. But why do you say that uh, it's more of something that uh, the policymakers should be focusing on rather than economists? And I, I guess this goes back to the responsibilities, the duties, uh, you know, what the job is to be an economist. Uh, well, the duties, the responsibilities, I wouldn't presume to speak for small business owners or any business owner in terms of hiring um, and what skills uh, they're looking for and how they find them. You know, we've been talking mostly, although you refer to it as middling, uh, mostly about positive uh, economic news. But one thing that uh, is very, very noticeable so far here in 2016 is the stock market. I mean, it has gone way down by percentage points uh, since the beginning of uh, 2016. What's going on? Um, nothing to do with the economy. The financial markets have never been more disconnected from economic reality, I think. Um, there's no no economic support for the idea that st- stock markets should be declining by percentage points, whole percentage points, consecutive days. Um, I've read stories about uh, financial market financial analysts calling this a correction. Um, I've heard the anecdotal discussions of uh, this is just deflating what was built up during the um, years of stable, slow but stable growth. Um, so it may just be financial markets pulling back, but it's not in response to anything real economically on the ground. But the problem is, is it's real money. You know, for those who, and everyone points to 401ks but or retirement investments, but, you know, when you're losing, the Dow Jones loses 1,500 points in three weeks, that's real money for people out there. I don't think it is real money. You don't? Um, no. We're talking about uh, if, if you sell uh, as it's declining 1,500 points, then that becomes real money. But we're, those are the people that are, if we're talking about retirement accounts, are currently withdrawing from their retirement accounts and would be at a point where their retirement account is so low that that eats away the, the last bit of it. Uh, financial markets will recover. They always do. Uh, and if we look ahead at 2016 as a another stable year of growth um, where the U.S. economy is going to be strongest economy in the world, um, financial markets, if they're going to react to that, um, then financial markets, those values would go back up. And if you hadn't, if uh, those that may have uh, held on to their stocks as through this roller coaster ride, um, 
then it wasn't real money. It went away, it came back, or it didn't uh, change at all, depending on how you look at it from what perspective and what time frame. So what you're saying is that, uh, and as most uh, financial advisors would, would, would tell you, is if you stay in it for the long haul, if you're patient, you will see these kinds of ups and downs. But in the long run, you should be okay. And the only people who will, it will be real money is if someone panicked and went out today and said, okay, I'm taking all the money out. Yeah. That's uh, that's the only way it becomes real. It's it's it, it's not real money until you've sold that stock or bought that stock. One thing you didn't mention, though, as possible reasons for the volatility in the stock market is China. China's economy, which was robust. I mean, I don't know if robust is a strong enough word for what's happened in the past 15 years in China, but it has slowed down considerably in the last few weeks, in the last few months. And as we well know, what happens overseas has an impact here in the United States. States. I want to play something for you. Yesterday, uh, Smart Talk broadcast live from the Pennsylvania Farm Show. And I was uh, talking with uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture, Russell Redding. And he brought something up that was a bit of a surprise. And I'll bet a lot of people don't think about this. But give this a listen. He's talking about uh, uh, agriculture, farmers in uh, Pennsylvania. We are linked to both a national and global market. What has happened in China? Uh, in the last several months, particularly the last couple of weeks, has really uh, cast a long shadow uh, for Pennsylvania. Our dairy industry is dependent on exports. Our grain markets are dependent on exports. Our poultry, everything is dependent on that link to a larger market. Now, I brought that up, Kurt. I wanted to play that because it's a great example of what so many people don't think about is that, you know, Pennsylvania farmers have been impacted, their incomes being impacted by what happens on the other side of the world. It's not just agriculture. It's almost every industry. Well, I would have to defer to uh, that speaker regarding Pennsylvania's agricultural economy because that is not my expertise. But as far as total exports go, um, China is overblown. The impact of China is overblown. Um, 13% 13% of the U.S. economy is dependent, or U.S. dollar value of the U.S. economy, 13% of it is uh, the result of exporting goods and services abroad. Of that, about 10% is um, going to China, of 10% of the 13%. It turns out to about 1.2% of the U.S. economy is dependent on China, actually exporting goods and services to China. Now, that fraction may be higher for Pennsylvania farmers, as was suggested in that clip, um, but on the whole, China's slowdown in its economy from growing at 8% to growing at 6% is not the, in any way suggesting doom or gloom for uh, the U.S. economy overall. The U.S. economy is dependent upon the U.S. economy, upon U.S. consumers, U.S. workers bringing home paychecks and spending those paychecks. But again, we have heard so much about it being a global economy and what happens in Europe, what happens in Greece, what happens in China. Is that just for the most part uh, stock market wise or, uh, you know, when you're talking about exports only being 13 percent of the economy? Yeah, that's that's it. It's overreaction. It's headlines. It's trying to um, get get attention uh, for these notable or notable global economic events. But when the rubber, where the rubber meets the road, where it turns into potential for U.S. jobs, Pennsylvania-based jobs, uh, that's where it becomes real economic, um, worthy of economic analysis. 
and slowdowns and slowdowns, not declines, slowdowns in China uh, just don't qualify. Europe's a bigger export market, makes up more of that 13%. But again, when we're talking about Greece, it was their debt situation. It was finances. Um, it was not um, all-out decline and economic and them ceasing um, importing U.S. Uh, goods and services. All right, let's talk about central Pennsylvania. Now, we've been talking uh, about the U.S. economy. Uh, if you were to describe, take an outlook for the central Pennsylvania economy in 2016, what would you see? Central Pennsylvania, I'm starting to feel good about 2016, at least some surge in growth, um, as good as I've felt in a while. Uh, Harrisburg and York, um, Lancaster is how we define the region, um, aggregating those. But if you look at un- the unemployment rate, it's back to healthy state. If you look at job growth, Harrisburg is well above average in adding jobs uh, through the end of 2015, um, Harrisburg being the largest of those three economies. Wage growth, um, above average. So uh, go, entering 2016, it looks like that Central Pennsylvania finally has some momentum that it's been lacking over the last couple of years. And why is that? Uh, because of that spread of jobs that I talked about with the, with the U.S. economy. Uh, when we talked last uh, in August or September, uh, for example, transportation, a high-paying industry, we talked about where those jobs might be coming from. That uh, job growth in that industry for uh, Pennsylvania was about 6%. Um, that number for Harrisburg has since jumped up to 8% growth year over year. Manufacturing continues to add jobs. That's filtered down to leisure and hospitality, which means we've got that circle flowing where uh, each of those jobs, those people are making money, gasoline prices are low, so they're Consumers are finally comfortable spending that money, it seems, so it's flowing back into the local economy, and it, uh, that creates economic momentum that's not easily undercut. You know, Kirk, when we have you on, we always have uh, people, uh, listeners who, you know, have specific questions about their own uh, situations, but uh, some of these questions hold true for so many people. Kim writes us an email asking, my oldest son is a recent college graduate. He and several of his peers are still not employed in their field. For kids planning for college now, what fields look promising for central Pennsylvania in the next few years? You've touched on some, but uh, if you would specifically with uh, with Kim's question. Uh, Pennsylvania is no different um, than the rest of the nation in terms of engineering, anything uh, math-oriented, the STEM um, those sort of degrees, actual jobs where you're going out um, and analyzing and critical thinking, um, jobs that can't easily be replaced where, you, where having that education base allows you to make decisions and allows you to uh, contribute to conversations within a business that a computer can't do or you can't just ship overseas. Um, those are the jobs that um, are going to be those with degrees in those fields are going to be able to e- most easily get jobs as the economy continues to progress in 2016. Are there areas that have slowed down considerably uh, in the economy that uh, maybe these are some uh, some areas that w- w- should be avoided? Um, com- slowed down as, as compared to when? Well, as far as adding jobs, maybe losing jobs, and I'm talking about uh, industries or uh, sectors of the economy. Uh, If we're talking about over the past year, uh, about the only sector that's slowed down has been uh, natural resources development, something that offers a great deal of potential for Pennsylvania as we look further ahead. Um, But those jobs simply because of continued low prices have uh, 
we've we've lost all of the job gains in natural in natural resources across Pennsylvania and natural resources development that we gained throughout 2013 and 2014. So, but um, as far as slowing down or seeing uh, jobs job growth slow, Pennsylvania statewide at least um, isn't uh, slowing down a great deal in any one industry. Well, and by that, by natural resources, you're talking mostly about uh, natural gas drilling, correct? Exactly. Natural gas drilling was responsible for this um, growth uh, doubling in that industry size. It's still a very small percentage of overall jobs, but the industry itself went from, say, 18,000, 20,000 jobs up to uh, above 35,000 jobs um, in 2013. But those jobs, some of those jobs have been given back, the numbers um, back below 35,000. Um, because of low prices, because drillers are not adding jobs. Um, but low prices, again, prices are going to be low now. They're going to eventually go back up, um, especially once export capacity, and we get the capacity to export natural gas from the U.S. Uh, to the rest of the world. And those jobs, from what we've heard, the statistics that we've seen, those are high-paying jobs, correct? Yes, some of the highest-paying jobs, um, just walking in, in the door, and uh, you're the first uh, entry-level position in those industries, so those are some of the highest-paying jobs. But they're not just out-in-the-field drillers. There's uh, engineering that goes into it. There's uh, technology behind um, those those rigs. There's been just just since uh, 2008 when the natural res- natural gas drilling boom began to affect uh, Pennsylvania. We've seen advances in the technology for the drills themselves, uh, being able to drill um, more wells from an ex- from a single drilling pad. Uh, the the fluids that go into the drilling, uh, that involves engineering, chemical engineering. I, I don't profess to be an expert in w- what goes into it, but there is clearly um, capacity for advancement in, in, uh, in developing those sorts of inputs into the industry. And then there's back office. We've got uh, businesses relocating or at least setting up regional offices from where this is a um, an ongoing decades-long industry supporting Oklahoma and Texas. We've got uh, farms that are going to want to set up local headquarters uh, in Pennsylvania to be close on the ground here to the operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's you said something earlier that I found interesting. You said that uh, when natural gas prices start going up again, and you were talking about exports, uh, be a little more sp- specific. What were you talking about there? Um, natural gas uh, prices somewhere around $4 per million BTUs and it's not million per million BTUs might not be as familiar familiar to most as per barrel of oil but uh the same sort of uh idea your, your standard measurement prices being around uh $3 below $3 now and even lower than that for natural gas coming out of the ground in Pennsylvania is well below this sort of $4 benchmark where employers at least recently have tended to start adding jobs but that $4 per million BTUs here in the United States is 8 or $9 in Europe or is 16 or $18 in Asia. So the ability to export to those markets where you can sell that natural gas for a higher price um, means that drillers will pull more out of the ground because they can sell it at that higher price abroad. And without a global market the way oil is, um, businesses will be jockeying and will be hiring in order to uh, grab uh, that demand, grab a piece of that pie. What about housing here in central Pennsylvania? Uh, housing is very reflective of the strong uh, jobs year. We're, um, housing in Harrisburg, at least, um, will see its strongest year since the first 2005-2006, the sort of 
three bubble uh, years. New, new residential permitting um, has all but recovered, at least uh, for this past year. 2014 was relatively weak after 2013, but uh, 2015, and now with job growth uh, being, uh, we've got positive momentum in job growth, it should be sustained. Uh, there should be no, more home building, uh, more jobs coming from that as, as people look to uh, move up in the housing market. We have Gary on the line from Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, I'm a hospital bed. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, what happened? Oh, uh, I got the uh, uh, gallbladder. Oh. Anyway, but the moral story is uh, we we made $16,000 one year just on scrap metal. It was $12 per 100 pounds. It's now down to $1. The steel industry has just collapsed. There's no market overseas. Apparently, they're going to be closing iron ore mines because there's just no real demand for our steel right now and if you follow that backwards and then you know there's some commodity prices that are way down as far as farmers uh, look forward to as far as corn and uh, wheat and uh, I'm not sure about barley but but certainly soybeans are up there but not at the 13 14 dollars a bushel they used to be so just wanted to throw that in there because the steel industry used to be a real good driver of at least some parts of the economy and that market is just really on its heels right now all right. Thank you very much for your call, and I hope you get better soon. Yeah, no problem. Take right. care. So what about steel? I mean, this seems like we're almost going back in time a little bit, Kurt, that uh, steel used to be one of the drivers of Pennsylvania's economy. Um, yes, yeah, steel has been hit hard by the same thing that uh, steel as a commodity, oil as a commodity. Commodities markets pretty much across the board have been oversupplied by all this capacity you mentioned China, how strong it was growing. Well, China was growing. I wouldn't exactly call it robust. China was growing for the sake of growing. In order, they were building ghost towns, not really um, building because of need. Uh, but that took a lot of raw materials, a lot of steel being produced. China started to feel the impacts of that built that hollow building, um, but the capacity never slowed down. So that capacity, whenever China, which is a command-controlled economy, decides, okay, we're putting a uh, moratorium on building in this region, that steel's got to go somewhere while well, it's going to flow out to the rest of the world, and that's going to oversupply the market, which is going to drive down prices, and that's hit hard in the United States as well as other places. Mm. Uh, you know, you mentioned infrastructure when we were talking about the national economy. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we've heard often that uh, our infrastructure needs to be improved. A couple years ago, we had uh, uh, legislation that was passed here in Pennsylvania that provided millions of dollars uh, for transportation infrastructure. What about infrastructure here in Pennsylvania as compared to the rest of the country? It's sorely outdated, and there's a, um, a whole lot of it, given the terrain, uh, given the uh, larger cities, the cross-state um, Pennsylvania being so in the middle of, you've got um, the East Coast, the large economies of the East Coast, you've got the Chicago, you've got the Midwest, Pennsylvania is right along that conduit, that um, transportation conduit, um, and so it gets a lot of use, but uh, we hear about the bridges, so many bridges across the state, um, uh, just here locally in, in Pittsburgh, we've got bridges that were built for a 50-year lifespan that are 80, 100 years old. Uh, it just It's not something that the proper amount of uh, resources have been dedicated to over the years, and that adds up.
Well, Kurt Rankin, even though you describe it as middling, we still have some positives, actually more positives than we've had in uh, recent years. I want to thank you very much for being on the program today. Sure. Thank you, Scott. All right. Kurt Rankin is a PNC financial services economist. We'll be back with more right after this. In the summer of 2012, the Curiosity rover landed on Mars, 140 million miles from Earth. It doesn't get the kind of attention that the Apollo moon landings did, but it is not a stretch to say it was one of this nation's greatest scientific achievements. At the helm of putting a vehicle on Mars was Adam Stelzner, who has written a new book called The Right Kind of Crazy, a true story of teamwork, leadership, and high-stakes innovation. Mr. Stelzner, welcome to the program. Okay. The term rocket scientist is used very often today, today to describe a person who is uh, intelligent. But you truly are a rocket scientist. However, no one would have seen that coming all the way through your teen years, would they? No, they wouldn't have. I was a very poor student in school. I, um, I started down a path of playing rock and roll. I was a, a wannabe rock star in the San Francisco Bay Area when one night after returning home from a, a show, I noticed the stars were in a different place in the night sky than they had been when I went out to the show. And I became curious about that motion of the stars in the night sky. I was not a good student. I'd missed the whole Earth spinning on its axis thing. <laughs> and I went down to the local community college to take an astronomy course to teach me why the stars were moving. It had a prerequisite of physics. I said, physics, that's crazy. But it was conceptual physics, physics without math, physics for poets. So I said, well, maybe I'll be okay. I took that class, and my world changed. It, it caught me, and I just took off in a different direction. Yeah, what you're describing, and you describe in your book, is your curiosity took over. And, you know, that's something that we here at WITF as a public media station, we talk about curiosity all the time, but you're the perfect example of someone who, I mean, and you, you didn't really describe it like you did in the book. Not only were you a rock and roller, but you smoked dope, you grew pot. Uh, as you said, you weren't a very good uh, uh, student, but your curiosity one night changed your life. Yes, it did. And that act of following my curiosity, I have discovered is one of the most powerful, potent, and human activities that we have. And I think it's expressed when we explore. I think uh, curiosity is a spark and exploration is the fire that burns from it. And um, I love it. Well, you said that you went to the local community college, but you didn't stop there. In fact, you went a whole lot further when it comes to education. Talk about your educational path. Well, so I started at the local community college, and frankly, I started by redoing my high school education because I had really been mostly stoned and not present in high school, and, um, and then followed with a, a mechanical engineering degree from the University of California, Davis. I went down to Caltech and became a graduate student, uh, got a master's in applied mechanics, and then finally finished my Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, uh, in engineering physics. Now, again, I, I think back to uh, you, you talk about some of the things that your father even said about uh, your future. He wasn't real optimistic. There weren't a lot of people who were optimistic about your future. And just what you described, I mean, that is amazing. 
Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a stark lesson for me that it's easy to count yourself out. I had convinced myself and everybody in my life that I was not a good student and was really not able to apply myself. And, and as my father once said, he thought I was going to become a ditch digger. And um, I was wrong in my assessment, and, and I was convincing and convinced them along that same incorrect assessment of what I was capable of. And I have a feeling that that's true for other people, too. I have a suspicion that many times we count ourselves short, count ourselves out when we shouldn't. And so um, uh, I am hopeful that my story and, the, uh, and some of the lessons in the book will help people question, wait, what, what can I do if I followed my curiosity? Where could my curiosity take me? Yeah, it, it is uh, an inspiring uh, story, that's for sure. Eventually, you got a job, and really, I hate to even describe it that way. Uh, I, it's not like you walk in and fill out an application, and they call you back two weeks later and say, hey, you got a job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, talk about uh, what JPL does, how you uh, actually got in, and, and what you did at the beginning of your career there. Sure. You know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has been around since the, uh, uh, it started as an Army facility in the late 40s after the war. It's uh, responsible for the vast bulk of the U.S. unmanned space mission, the uh, robotic exploration of space. We do an awful lot of the nation's robotic exploration at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. What that means is we typically are, are making one-off creations to go to a new destination in our solar system to teach us something about a place in our solar system, in our universe. It's a um, collection of some of the finest people I've ever met, very, very bright folks. It's very competitive to get a job there. And my first job interview, cr I crashed and burned. I went there. I had a connection. I had a master's degree from, the Cal, uh, from Caltech. I came up to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory thinking it was going to be a walk in the park, and I fell flat on my face. And it wasn't until I um, sort of did it the old-fashioned way and uh, sent resumes in and followed them up with calls that I found somebody who was interested in giving me a chance. And as it would come to pass, that chance worked out. I started in the, in the uh, spacecraft structures and dynamics group doing sort of more traditional stress analysis, uh, but because I was kind of inclined towards the odd problem or certainly willing to handle or look and engage in the odd problem, I sort of collected odd problems started coming towards me and that sort of spiraled my career into a different direction, which eventually ended up with me taking jobs like the landing job, where I led the team that landed Curiosity and, on and Mars. I want to talk a little bit about, more about that, but uh, one of the first projects you work on was trying to land a vehicle on a comet. Now, the yes. first attempt was unsuccessful because landing gear was a problem. So you eventually, as you moved on and you were working on Curiosity, the rover for Mars, landing gear and how to land that spacecraft was one of the the real challenges talk about that sure um we uh you know uh when you're landing a huge rover on the surface of mars this curiosity rover is uh, the largest rover ever put on another planet and it is the size of an of an automobile about two thousand pounds in weight um 
when you're well, all of the previous techniques that we'd used to land spacecraft on Mars, and we put a few spacecraft on the surface of Mars, all of those various techniques were not available to us. Uh, we'd used airbags in the past. The airbags, um, there's no airbag material known to humankind that's strong enough to build, um, to handle such a, the mass of this big rover. Um, we had used legged landers before, but we'd lost some legged landers due to, to um, instability in the presence of rough terrain. And if you put a big rover on top of a legged lander, that's not going to work out. And so we were really forced uh, to come together and look again at this question of how to, what kind of landing gear to use for this big rover. And when we finally looked back at it and sat with the open question long enough, that happened in the fall of 2003, we came away from that with this idea of this technique that would be called the sky crane, where we would lower the rover below a jet backpack on cables and then touch it gently onto the surface of Mars on its wheels. That's the sky crane. That's the right kind of crazy, according to the NASA administrator, <laughs> the top brass at NASA. And that's the technique we used. Mm. You know, I, I love how you describe uh, kind of a typical day at work for you because it sounded like uh, uh, with your team, and you are very high on teamwork, um, that with your team that you're always coming up with ideas. And to say thinking outside the box, that's so cliche and it's so far away from what you do. You're trying to come up with di different ideas, things that people never would have thought of. What it reminded me of, there's a famous scene in the movie Apollo 13 where it said, we literally have to fit a square box into a round hole. That sounds like what you and your team were trying to do every day. Uh, that's true. And um, I, you know, it's a delightful, for some people, myself included, it's the best job on the face of the earth. Um, but it means you're always operating at the edge of what is possible. And so you're, you're using techniques to navigate that edge of what's possible. And that's why, and I believe that those, those techniques, some of those lessons are actually transferable to non-rocket science endeavors. You know, whether you're uh, starting a business or trying to, you know, um, innovate a new solution to some something you're, you're already working on. Some of the challenges of invention and managing innovation cut across, um, across fields. Uh, and certainly we face them so regularly that we get, I think, pretty well practiced at how to deal with them. We only have a minute or so left. I wish we had more time to talk. But uh, as we said, there are lessons or, that can be learned uh, from your book. You talked about teamwork. You also talked about ideas and not to fall in love with your own ideas and to listen to other people. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, when you're inventing, it's, um, it's easy to become uh, attached to the idea that you've created. And one of the features of the culture at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that's well-established and been around for years is this idea of separating the people from the ideas that the people hold. You've got to respect and love the people and make a collaborative environment for them, but you have to have the ideas compete in mortal combat. And so if that's not about you can't defend your idea if from in that combat because you love it. You've got to let go of it. You've got to stand beside your idea and allow a critical eye to evaluate it. Uh, your own critical eye, the critical eye of others, 
You've got to let that happen if you're going to come up with the best solutions possible. Adam Steltzner has written a new book. It's called The Right Kind of Crazy, A True Story of Teamwork, Leadership, and High-Stakes Innovation. It has just been published, and I highly recommend it. Mr. Steltzner, thank you very much for, uh, for being with us today. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning.